from Birmingham, Alabama. You're listening to the Flat Picking Pilgrim's Progress. I'm your host, Gary Furr, and I'm so glad to have you with me today. Whether you're sitting in your favorite chair or riding along in the car, I'm glad we're going to get to spend this time together. Welcome, fellow pilgrims and flat pickers. Good to have you here today. I am marking my father's birthday today. I'm going out to take a cake and uh, all the folks out at the uh, independent living unit are coming to a party lunch today. Dad turns 89. He's made it through 40 years of retail management and 18 years of sales on the road and four children. About a million air miles in business. He survived one cancer and another precancer, a heart attack, diabetes, neuropathy. And now he's dealing with, with Alzheimer's, but he still keeps going. And he has a positive spirit, and I'm glad about that. I was born in Concord, North Carolina, in the Piedmont region of western North Carolina. Back then, Concord was a sleepy textile mill town. Cannon mills were there. Pretty rural, now gobbled up by Charlotte and the plague of development that interstate highways bring along with prosperity. People grew a lot of their own food back then, unless they lived in town. Everybody had a garden and homegrown tomatoes. My grandma called them maters, as in, let's have a mater sandwich. That was consisting of mayonnaise, lots of pepper, and two slices of sunbeam or marita white bread. We didn't know about wheat bread back then. Everybody in Concord in those days smoked cigarettes. It was a huge part of the economy. I don't recall a single sermon damning cigarette smoking when I lived there as a boy, although I'm sure an evangelist here and there would take a shot at it and leave town. But it was a source of a lot of the tithes and offerings, so it was politely considered neutral religiously. The men smoked, and most of the women, and about half the preachers, it was what one of my professors at Baylor used to call a geographical sin. Dad picked cotton as a kid on the farm. He was one of six brothers, three sisters. Uh, he particularly hated working with cotton. He said, if you ever watched a the rear end of a mule all day long in a cotton field, you swore to yourself you would graduate from high school and get a real job. Anyway, eventually he went to work at the fixture shop down at McClellan's and somebody saw his talent and leadership and they put him on the management track and uh, that sent us all over the United States through my boyhood while he promoted and trained in different places. So that meant we spent an awful lot of time on the road. So today I was remembering back to one incident that happened when we were traveling. Now, remember, you didn't have video screens in the car. You had a back seat with that hump in the middle. And here were three boys until I was 12, and then we added a sister. So this constant jostling on the road and the lack of space made conflict with one's neighbor pretty much in, yeah, inevitable. 
wherever two or more are gathered together in a confined space, to paraphrase Jesus, there is potential violence in the midst of them. So wise parents make efforts, futile to be sure, to try to keep their little doggies in highway games or songs to overcome the tedium. We would sing hymns and campfire songs and highway bingo, whatever we could come up with. Now, we had an AM radio, but we'd fight over the station, so that wasn't very good. We would sing campfire songs, but, you know, after about 800 rounds of found a peanut or 99 bottles of beer, somebody's yelling for you to shut up. Now, I don't mean we did knock-down, drag-out fighting, but it was more like, you know, stop touching me, make him move over, he's touching me, I'm not touching him, he's over the line, what line? Here's the space, there's your space, you're over the line. So once all this fighting began, then we argued over who got in the last hit, or who ought to. And this would keep on until A, someone cried, B, my mother reached the boiling point and screamed at us, or C, my father stopped the car. If C occurred, we were doomed. Once we were traveling to Mexico on a vacation trip, and naturally the fights were underway, we were about in the third round. We just stopped at a gas station for refreshment, and my brother Greg, who went on to become a CPA and have quite a good career as an accountant, like the rest of us, we had bought bottled drinks, but only Greg had kept his bottle to turn in later. We were in a hurry, so uh, the rest of us just left them there, and Greg brought his because back then when you got a bottled drink, you paid three cents uh, to kind of keep you from running off with the bottle. And if you brought it back, you got your three cents back. This was back before aluminum cans and throwaway bottles. So Greg, who my brother Mike and I had nicknamed Big Spender, insisted on keeping his so he could collect three cents from the next store. Now, when he finished drinking the Coke, he just laid the bottle down in the floor in the back seat. And so it started bumping. For miles, it rattled against the floor mat. It bumped up and down, making little thumps on the carpet, and then it rolled up under Dad's seat, started to uh, hit the springs up under there when we hit a rough patch in the road. After a while, even that bottle, I think, didn't want to be redeemed anymore. But at the same time, my brother Mike, my youngest brother, and I were waging a full-scale territorial dispute. We had escalated to slapping and pinching. We had not matured enough to be able to gauge my father's temper by watching his jaw muscle. It always gave him away. He was very slow to anger, but it was more like a volcano. When it blew, it just really blew. So he was agitated, and he was trying to ignore all this noise back there, hoping it would stop. But it kept going, and the bottle kept pumping. You know, one minute you're just sailing along in life, and the next minute an asteroid lands on your house, or a drunk driver plunges through your front plate glass window. Life goes pretty good, as coaches say, and then crisis. And so it was with my dad's temper. Uh, there were subtle warnings. His jaw muscle was twitching. He kept giving dirty looks over his shoulder. We ignored the signs. The bottle kept bumping. We kept fighting. Finally, Dad slammed over to the shoulder of the highway, turned and showered three indiscriminate whacks on our laps, and then he got out of the car, and we started to cower at this point. We knew what was coming. We looked to our mother for clemency, but she just turned away. 
So our last appeal was gone, and we were doomed. So my dad, six feet five inches of Big John, yanked the back door open and reached inside, and the spankings never came. He took that bottle from under the seat and hurled it out into some farmer's unsuspecting pasture. And I got to tell you, that throw was impressive, easily the furthest I had ever seen any object fly. It sailed full of fury, a staggering distance. And in better times, we might have patted him on the back and said, Dad, what a throw, but we were at least smart enough to know this was not the moment. He got back in the car, and my brother Greg started to sniffle, and tears rolling down his cheeks, and he said, I was going to get my three cents. Oh, man. My dad was had, and now his rage, world-threatening a moment earlier, shrunk into sheepishness. Dad got out, and he used to carry, he's such a big guy, but he would carry this tiny little, those little, remember those little plastic coin purses? I mean, they they just looked absurd, and you you would press them on either end, and it would open up like a fish's mouth, and you could keep your pennies in there. He kept that thing forever. So here's this giant man, a moment earlier terrifying to us. He reaches in with a thumb and a finger and pulls out three pennies, puts them into his palm, and says, Here! Oh, man, we could not describe the silence of that moment adequately. He put the car into forward, and we rolled down the highway, and I suspect somewhere in South Texas today, that glass bottle still sits. No one's found it yet. It went too far to have been found unless it was mowed over. And deposits are no longer available for glass bottles. They have to be recycled. I've thought if we have enough time, maybe we can ride down there one of these days and put up a marker. Here, on such and such date, was the furthest hurl of a bottle. Well, my dad did a lot of things in life to get us through. And on this 89th birthday, uh, I want to take a moment. And I thought I would share something with you I wrote for him several years ago, back when he was able to remember it, but I kept it. So this is called A Memory of Dad. I have pictures in my mind, first of looking up at this tall, silent man, looking up in fear sometimes, in awe most of the time as he went about life. He was strong, good, quiet, rarely angry with us. I looked up when I read his scrapbooks, bookshots flying through the air, frozen forever as the ideal athlete playing catch with you in the backyard or playing basketball while you watched. Always the same. You were the Mount Everest of my childhood. I have pictures of you with tools, hammering, sawing, sweating, up on ladders, up on the roof, in the garage, in the yard. You weren't still very much. I wanted to be like you. When I got married and got desperate enough, I got a job pulling nails and then driving them in and You gave me my first hammer, and I still have it, by the way. I barely knew which end was which, but I had always watched you as a boy go off and work, work, work. I knew that's what I was supposed to do. 
So I drew on that and learned enough for myself to be a certified carpenter. And that job convinced me that preaching with air conditioning was a better way to go. But still, you showed me how to use my hands. I have pictures of you at the store day in and day out, working long hours, all day, nearly every day, never griping about it. And years later, be on the road all the time and how tired you must have been. But come the next day, up you got, out the door, on about your business. And what you did was a mystery until those times at Christmas when you employed all of us eventually at McCrory's as the Christmas chain gang in the toy department. And then we wanted it to be a mystery again. But I would watch you handling things, helping people find what they wanted, setting up displays, really enjoying what you did, to tell you the truth. I have pictures in my mind of you at my wedding at my ordination, reading my charge, coming to see us. You stood around at the edge of all the noise and stories and excitement and grinned, taking it in, feeling no need to say much, but delight shining from your eyes. My girls adore you for your sweetness and gentle spirit. Oh, and what would I do without those images of you sitting in the bedroom in the evening by yourself? plucking that black Sears silvertone electric guitar and singing I Want to Go Home and Hank Williams songs. You gave me country and bluegrass and my first guitar and the love of music. I have you to thank for playing by ear and the instinct for improvisation. The joy of your retirement years has meant we've shared music together and rediscovered the music you knew as a young man. I wish your brother Paul was still here so we could really enjoy him and his talent. And I remember some pretty short but wise proverbs you gave us. We'll be there when we get there. People do what they have to do. Lots of stories. As far as jokes, some of the corniest groaners I've ever heard in my life. There were times as a young man when I complained to myself that you were too busy and I wished you had more time to be around. But I look back and see that my life is full of images, you, work and family and music and faith, plenty of good things for life, and I realize what a big, cool shadow you cast over my life in the heat of growing up. You were always there to provide for us, show us, and delight in us. We are all grateful, and we love you. In 2005, I went on sabbatical thanks to a grant from the Lilly Endowment. And one of the things I did while I was on sabbatical was to go with my dad to a, an acoustic music camp for a week. And we roomed together, a couple of other guys, and we sat around jamming until two in the morning. And every night there were concerts by the faculty, and it was just incredible. This was at Steve Kaufman's camp in Maryville, Tennessee. It's just the best in the world. And I saw my dad, who had worked so much that he was gone more than he was home most of the time when I was growing up. I watched him enjoying himself. On the last day of camp, we were getting ready to part. I was driving back home to Alabama. He was headed back to Atlanta, and I said, 
you know, Dad, I, I know you've worked hard and, and you did it for all of us, but, uh, you know, sometimes I, I did wish I'd had more time around you, but this week has just been so much fun and it's made it up for me. My dad said something that will stay with me forever. He said, this is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. Ever since that time, every time we're together, the last thing we do is pull out the guitar and the mandolin and we play some songs. It's usually the same old songs. The music jam, you see, is like a square dance. It's a perfect circle of manners. It's not for showing off, though people sometimes do. But it's really about taking turns, making room for each other. When the other guy takes the lead, you back off and you let your playing come up underneath and sort of put a, a background around what he's playing or she's playing. You do little things to make them sound good. And the satisfaction is in the song itself and enjoying You don't even need words. We've done the same songs 500 times. They never get old. So, I don't know who you have in your family. Families are hard. Everybody in them is damaged in one way or another, and you're never going to get through childhood without a little bit of that. Sometimes it's really painful for some folks. But at some point, if you're able, what a wonderful thing it is to be able to offer blessing, to say thank you, or I love you. Or short of that, even would you forgive me? Or let's put that behind. What a blessing it is. By the family we are broken, said a therapist once. And by the family we are healed. I hope somewhere in your connections in this world you have some of that blessing. Either in the family you came from or the one you're making. But while I was looking around for these stories, I came across this. It doesn't have any notation, but it just says, What a blessing to have a son like you. I'm so proud of you. I didn't know you were watching me so close growing up. Thanks for all the compliments. Look forward to seeing you soon so we can jam some more. Listen to your song again. Always enjoy it. You are so talented. Love, Dad. I'm not exactly sure when he sent that. Dad doesn't do emails, so I'm not quite sure how I came across it. But I guess he did one. And I'll carry that around. i leave you with the song I wrote back in 2003 or four, somewhere in there. It was sort of a series of impressions that I Sort of fictionalized some of it, so it's not exactly a perfect uh, autobiographical song, but uh, catches the feeling of a child watching a film. It's called Daddy Never Said. Brent Warren plays with me on this. We recorded it live, playing Moonlight here in Alabama. 
Daddy never shed a tear when they said his mother died. He was just sixteen and full of disbelief. When their daddy left them to go to work in Georgia, he left him with his sisters and his grief. But he would sit there in the evenings with his silver tone guitar by himself and sing, I want to go home. And when he sang your cheating heart, he sang it to himself and to a life that left him all alone. As a boy, I missed the things I wanted him to tell me, though I was thankful that he kept us clothed and fed. So I carried all my questions deep down in my heart, oh, wondering about the things. Daddy never said Daddy never did complain About the job that kept him gone Fourteen hours a day And weeks out on the road and Daddy never did explain Why it was my mother cried sometimes Leaving crossed his mind, it never showed. He would sit there every evening with his silver tone guitar by himself and sing, I want to go home. And when he sang your cheating heart, he sang it to himself. And in the notes, I heard my daddy's song. As a boy, I missed the things I wanted him to tell me, though I was thankful that he kept us clothed and fed. So I carried all my questions deep down in my heart, oh, wondering about the things Daddy never said. I used to think about what was missing in my life But I'm not the little boy I used to be You see, I've walked a mile or two in my father's shoes And I've learned about the things Daddy never said to me Now I sit here in the evenings with his silver tone guitar by myself and sing I wanna go home when I sing your cheating heart well I sing it to myself and in the notes I hear my daddy's songs as a boy I miss the things I wanted him to tell me now I count up all the good deeds that he did. You see, there's different ways of knowing and different ways of showing. 
I'm Gary Furr, and this is the Flat Picking Pilgrim's Progress. Thanks for joining me today. You can find my music at G-A-F-U-R-R, gafur.com. And you can go to my blog site for lots of other information and writings at GaryFur.me. G-A-R-Y-F-U-R-R dot me. Once again, thank you so much. Join me next time on the Flat Picking Pilgrim's Progress.